There we go. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in Revelation chapter 2. We're looking at the church of uh, Smyrna, the letter that Jesus wrote to them. And I mentioned that it is one of the central passages in the Bible that deals with suffering for the sake of the Lord. Uh, just a brief background for those of you that weren't here. Smyrna was a city in competition with Ephesus uh, for uh, recognition as the most splendid city of Asia Minor. And it was very proud of its devotion to Rome and emperor worship. In fact, it boasted of having this worship. And of the seven churches, only the churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia received no condemnation from Jesus. And many believe that um, uh, it was because Smyrna was a suffering church. There's only commendation, there's encouragement, there's a promise of eternal life for those who remain faithful. But there's nothing to condemn them for. Uh, last week I also mentioned that there are different reasons why the church at Smyrna suffered. I went over two main reasons. The first one was that the city was fervent with emperor worship. In fact, they boasted of being leader in Asia Minor, um, Asia, Asia Minor of emperor worship. And those who refused to worship the emperor were liable to be executed. And so when the believers in Smyrna refused to pay religious devotion and offer up worship to um, uh, this emperor, it fanned the flames of hostility against them. They were marked. And it was dangerous to be a faithful Christian in Smyrna at that time. So the first reason was because of this um, emperor worship and devotion to Rome. The second reason why there was such persecution and suffering was because there was a sizable anti-Christian Jewish population. Uh, there was great antagonism that existed within the Jewish community toward the church. And they greatly slandered the Christians in that area. Often they would turn the Christians into Roman authorities if they found out they weren't worshiping. And if you recall, I mentioned last week that it was mandated that they had to worship and offer incense to this bust of the emperor. And then you were given a certificate. And if you didn't have this certificate and you were caught, then you would be executed. So uh, it was, as I said, it was dangerous. And so if you didn't have that certificate and the Jews found out, they would quickly turn you in. And I mentioned also that um, they were deeply involved in the mart martyrdom of Polycarp. He was the bishop of Smyrna. They even compromised the Sabbath by collecting wood to burn them at the stake. And so the evidence we have when we look back at the, that time for Smyrna is that the life for faithful Christians in this city was more dangerous than anywhere else, anywhere else in the Roman Empire. So suffering and persecution there in Smyrna was prevalent for those who follow Jesus Christ. And last week I also took a brief look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6-7. through 7. I want to read those verses again, just by way of reminder. Peter said, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So from this we see that the sufferings, the trials, the persecutions, the difficulties we go through is a divine, is by divine design for a purpose. And as I said last week, praise be to God for the so that's. Because the so that tells us that there is a divine design, there is a purpose for all that we go through. 
It emphasizes that there's always a higher spiritual end in view for the sake of which God orchestrates all of our troubles and all of our trials and all of our suffering. It doesn't happen for no reason, right? And I mentioned James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. In verse 2, James said, we are to consider it all joy when we suffer, right? We are to consider it joy. And then he tells us why in verse 3 and 4. Knowing that, the knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So know why God allows us to go through these things. So that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so there's reason behind it. We don't go through suffering, we don't, don't go through trials, even to the point of death. We don't go through any of those things for no purpose or for no reason. I also mentioned last week that suffering evokes one of two reactions in the life of the Christian. It can evoke dependency, where we turn to God, and Lord, I need you, I'm desperate for you through this time. Or it could evoke disillusionment, where we begin to question, why me, God? Why me? Why do I have to go through this? What's going on? Why aren't you helping? Right. So it's either one of those um, uh, reactions. And then we looked at uh, verse 8. That's all we had the time for last week. And I'm, if you see me looking that way, it's because I'm so used to the clock being there. So I'm going to have to look this way. No, actually, I'm going to have my phone. Uh, anyway, but verse 8, we read, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last who is dead and has come to life says this. And I mentioned that in this verse, Jesus basically puts himself as the example. The first and last indicating that he has comprehensive control over all of history. Everything transpires by him, not outside of him. And so in the role of the eternal and infinite one, he gives this word of encouragement uh, that, this, that this church will be exposed to fierce persecution. And so he says, as the first and last, he is in sovereign control over all of history. We must remember that. I know at times we look at it and say, yes, God is in sovereign control, and it's a mental thing. But we need to understand that that has to grab hold of our hearts and realize that is real, that is now, that is practical, that he's in sovereign control. Because at times when we don't focus on that, we may know it mentally, but our hearts are far away and we begin to get that disillusionment. Like, why God, why me, as if we don't deserve it? So we have to be careful. Since he is the first, then that means he was before all things. Nothing comes before first. You come to first, that's it. There's nothing before it. So he was the first, and thus he is the source of all things. And since he is the last, then he's the one that's left when all else ends. So neither time nor things within time pose any limitation for Jesus. As the last, he is the one toward whom all things are moving, the goal for which everything exists, and the final explanation of all that takes place. So in a time of deep persecution for the uh, Smyrna Christians, they needed encouragement by the one who trans uh, transcends all of the limitations of time. And through all of their suffering, they can rest assured that he's at the beginning, he is at the end, and he's all the way through. And that's true for them, and it's true for us. He's the first, he is the last, he'll be all the way through. And we also see that he suffered to the point of death. That's why he's our example. As the eternal God, he became fully human, underwent the agony of death, but there was also the great victory of resurrection. So as an eternal and living Savior, he can and he will perform his promises. We must remember that. Just as Jesus experienced death and then resurrection after death, 
so will all those who die because of persecution. And that means even though we may not suffer death, we may go through persecution and trials, we will come out the other side. And Christ will make sure we come out the other side and we'll come out victorious. We could trust him for that. He's been there to the point of death. That's his promise. So as he experienced death and rose in triumph over it, so will all the martyrs and all those who go through trials. And this is a fact that's guaranteed by his eternal nature. We must trust in the reality that death does not mark the end. And we have to remember that so many people fear death. We ought not to fear death. We should welcome death. Death gets us to him face to face. Now, the way we die, of course, we would fear. But death is not something that we should fear. Even Jesus tells us, you know, don't fear the first death. It's the second death. And we'll talk about the second death later on. So no matter how severe the suffering, we don't need to fear either suffering or martyrdom. And the reason being is because Jesus Christ himself endured death, emerged victorious, and we are inseparably and eternally connected to him. Therefore, suffering, persecution, trials, even death cannot take us down. So we could rest assured there. So as our example, he assures us of victory. And that's where we left off. Now, before I continue with all that was said last week, are there any questions that may have popped through, uh, popped in your head through the week? Some clarifications from last week's lesson. Just want to make sure before we move on. Okay, today we're going to look at verse 9 and hopefully verse 10, but we'll see. But the, in verse 8, we saw that Jesus Christ is our example. Now the exhortation in verse 9 and verse 10 from Christ is that we follow his example. We follow his example of faithfulness through trials and tribulations and through persecution, even death. So notice in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. Now it's important to note something here. This church at Smyrna, with the church in Philadelphia, they are the only two churches where Jesus does not bring up any uh, weaknesses, as I mentioned before. Now there's some significance here, and one scholar brings out this significance, which I think is um, important for us. He said, it is telling that these two churches were also the least significant of the seven churches in terms of numbers and influence. This was one of the smaller churches. And then he goes on, the current preoccupation of the modern church with numbers and influence must be re-examined. It is more important to be faithful than to be powerful. And what he means by powerful is numbers. And I agree with him. Today, we measure the church's success based on numbers. And I can tell you from some of the research I personally had to do, that most churches with large numbers are the weakest churches. In fact, many of them, I would not call them churches. But yet, today, we look at these churches with big numbers, and we think they're the successful ones. In fact, you go to uh, conferences, and who are the speakers? Pastors of big churches, because they're successful. I would dare say that the majority of them are not what I would call churches. I would never... Excuse me, I would never attend those churches. I'm not saying that's true of all mega churches. Please don't hear me say that. But I know that nowadays there is this uh, 
getting caught up with numbers. We have to have larger numbers, more numbers. And I'm not saying numbers is wrong, but what I am saying is that too often there's a compromise in order to bring numbers in. And I think it's very dangerous. So I would agree with him that this, um, this preoccupation with this, I think, is very, very dangerous. But notice what he says in verse 9. Jesus knew. He knows the afflictions these Christians suffer as a result of their testimony. He knows their tribulation, their poverty, their, the blasphemy. It's interesting because I believe it's an indictment against the modern church today because most people in the church today would not consider these three things as strengths. Jesus commends this church and notice, I know your tribulation, poverty, and, and, and uh, blasphemy. Nowadays, if a church was experiencing these three things, what would we say? Boy, there's sin in that church. There's problems in that church. I wouldn't go to that church. We think it's weak. And yet Jesus commends them. I think what has happened is that today in the church we have forgotten that suffering for Christ is a privilege. We don't like to think that way, do we? Suffering for Christ is a privilege. We, like, we think that suffering is something we want to stay away from. And right, I mean, I'm not saying we just walk in, hey, I want to suffer. No, I realize that we don't want that. But we must consider that when we remain faithful and we suffer, it is a privilege. And in fact, it's considered a strength. Jesus commends them. But in most churches today, if you have that, what's the problem? There's a problem there. So it is painful, yes. But never forget, it is a privilege to participate in suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus knows when his own suffer because of their stand for him. And this alone should bring comfort to, to these martyrs. It never goes unnoticed by our Lord. And too often it's easy to forget this, isn't it? It's very easy to forget that Christ knows. And when we say that Christ knows, he doesn't just know about it. When we talk about Christ knowing, he knows it by experience. He's been there and he's with you. He knows it deeply. He knows it. And it's difficult for us to grasp what these believers must have awakened to each and every day. I mean, their lives were on the line. You go out and you get caught without that certificate. You get caught and you could be lied about by these Jews. Your life could come to an end. What that must have been like is unbelievable. See, we've never known anything remotely similar. Nor have we feared for our lives, for poverty, for family. Because we're protected by law here. But please understand the way things are going. It's, it's, we're getting to that point where it's going to be the same for us. And I've asked myself many times, how would I have fared as a Christian in Smyrna? How would I have fared? Would Jesus have found anything commendable in our response to state-sponsored persecution? Would he be able to look at us and say, I know and I commend you? These are questions we need to consider. Think about it. What if the power and the authority of Washington, D.C. were turned against you and your commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ? How would you react? What's that? You said, what if? <laughs> I'm talking about the way here. Our lives are not on the line yet. But you're right. It's getting there. It is. It's, it's because you listen to the news. In fact, I personally don't listen to the news because of it. But it, we're getting there. And the question is, is how are we going to respond? When we've been protected, it was easy. But when it comes against you, it'll be difficult. 
And what Jesus does here in verse 9 is he says, I know. He knew about the, the heavy pressure they were under. That word tribulation, I know your tribulation, that word literally means pressure. It was the picture of a, a big, huge rock crushing whatever lies underneath it. So they were going through a lot of pressure. It involves oppression, being in these narrow straits, if you will. And so they were under this constant, uninterrupted pressure from the pagan society. They were having, it's like they were having the life squeezed out of them, always looking over the shoulder because their lives are on the line. And so they were oppressed by the society. Tremendous persecution. And so the church is commended for its endurance through all of this time. Oftentimes I pray, oh God, make me that type of a Christian, that I would remain faithful under that kind of pressure. Jesus also said he knows their extreme poverty. So part of that pressure, part of that tribulation that they experienced involved extreme uh, uh, poverty. And the Greek term that's used here means beggarly and, and destitute. They were literally without means. Because if you didn't have that certificate, you can't go and buy. You can't go and trade. And so you were destitute. So what's interesting is, uh, as I mentioned last week, this city was extremely wealthy. There's a lot of commerce, a lot of trade going on. So amidst this very extremely wealthy city, you have these believers who are basically penniless, struggling to live. And so in a society that was very hostile, antagonistic to Christianity, it would be very difficult for them to make a living. Many of them would, uh, not, would not be allowed to work. Nobody would hire them and pay them. And so work and resources were cut off because of their testimony. And many times uh, they would be mobbed and looted for what they did have. And those who did it would be protected by law. Rome would not go after these people. And so they, they were boycotted and banned from making a living. And if you look throughout history, poverty has been the lot of the followers of Christ many times throughout history. Because the people of this world hate the children of light, and they want to do them harm. They don't want to see them benefit. And so this poverty was due to this persecution. Also, not only that, they would also stay away from certain places like these trade guilds that they would have. Because there's so much corruption so much immorality and perversion, they would purposely stay away because of their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And so their commitment to the Lord kept them from attending these places, and thus they remained in poverty, yet they continued to walk in faithfulness. I find that amazing. When I was studying this, I, I just stopped and thought about it. They literally had everything they had taken away. Many of them did. And they couldn't earn anything. And yet, they maintained faithfulness. You could think about Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, where we are told that their homes and property had been looted and pillaged. John Stott made a statement I thought was interesting. He said, make no mistake, it does not always pay to be a Christian, nor is honesty by any means always the best policy if material gain is your ambition. And it's still true today. If material gain is your ambition, then honesty will never be the best policy. 
and sad to say that there are many today who call themselves Christians where material gain is their ambition. And that's why it's easy to compromise. In fact, I've met some who compromise and they say, I know it's wrong, but God will forgive me anyway. So they play on God's grace. Clearly, material gain was not the ambition of these Christians in Smyrna. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, they joyfully accepted the plundering of the property, knowing that they had a better possession and an abiding one. And that's why they were able to endure such suffering. So in the case of these Christians in Smyrna, they had riches that the enemy could not even begin to understand. And we need to understand that we have riches now in Christ that this world has no concept of. Doesn't even know. They had wealth that could not be stolen. They had possessions that were not vulnerable to theft or rust. They didn't have to worry about the devaluation of their stuff because of falling stock prices. And so although the world would consider them to be in poverty, Jesus says, you are rich. So who cares what the world says when the king of glory says, you are rich. That's how they lived. And this persecution had actually brought the church closer to God. And that's usually what happens when you go through persecution and you have the proper response. It draws you closer and closer to God. And that's why Jesus Christ at this point could say, but you are rich. Keep that in mind when you go through suffering and difficulties. If you have to go without for the cause of Christ, keep in mind Jesus says, you are rich. You are rich. We may not feel rich physically, but spiritually we are. So in spite of the affliction that you may be going through, the difficulties you're going through, God has given you spiritual riches beyond your wildest dreams. And this is why we are commanded, set your mind on the things above. Right? Set your mind on the things above where Christ is. That's what we need to uh, set our minds on, rather than what's going on all around us. Face it, if you keep focusing on this darkness and what's all around, there's no way that you could get to feel satisfied and be filled with, uh, the, with, with joy. There's just so much darkness out there. Set your mind on things above, Paul tells us in, in Colossians, where Christ is. <clears throat> that's where we, excuse me, that's where we see our riches. So the poverty that they were experiencing physically in no way mirrored their spiritual condition. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul writes about this condition to the Corinthians when he knows that <clears throat> Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for uh, your sakes became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. And so even Paul emphasizes we in Christ are rich. And so... Jesus underscores this by telling them, but you are rich. In my Bible, it's, uh, it's, it's in parentheses, but it should be something we highlight. It be, should be something that we um, underline and put stars around and make it stand out. Because this is the reality of life right here. Not what this world tells us, but what Jesus Christ says here. But you are rich. That's reality. So they were poor physically, but they were rich spiritually. So let me ask you this question. 
What makes this so difficult to trust in as believers? We're so caught up with the, quote, the pleasures of this world, wanting what this world says is pleasurable, that we forget that the real pleasure comes where? In Christ. Psalm 16, right? In your presence are pleasures for how long? Forevermore. Can you get beyond forevermore? And so that's where our pleasures are. But we are easily distracted easily distracted by the things of this world, by the stuff of this world, by the, all that's going on in this world, that we try to find this delight, try to find this joy, try to find these riches in this world. And the devil is good at it. He's good at making that, uh, hanging that before our eyes. And so we're too often focused on the here and now that we don't contemplate the eternal enough. And think about it. In a hundred years from today, what's it going to matter what you have today? You won't even remember it. You will not even remember it. You won't remember the car you drove. You won't remember the house you lived because you are going to be consumed with the King of glory and being overwhelmed by Him, afresh and anew every moment you're there. So why not think on that rather than think on what this world wants to offer us. And so the physical is very temporal, spiritual is eternal. In fact, Jesus commented on this in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, Bruce already covered this, but in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, right? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so because our treasure is in Christ in heaven, we can be faithful regardless what the world says and regardless of the persecutions and the trials. And that's his example. He wants us to follow his example to be faithful when we go through hardship and abuse because we will be spiritually blessed continually. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, verse 29 through 30, Jesus told the disciples that for every sacrifice they make for the kingdom, they would receive a hundredfold in return and eternal life in the next world. But then he added, along with persecution. In other words, nowhere does Jesus promise that he will remove the persecutions and the trials and the difficulties. He just promises that there's going to be blessing. Right? So there's no promise that life is going to be fun and easy but he does promise those blessings. And so God would send spiritual blessings, not necessarily financial, but he would not remove the animosity. He would not remove the persecution, for that is what the life of Christ calls for. We're going to be, we will be persecuted. Now I want you to note here, we haven't covered the church, but the church at Laodicea, you can look at it later in chapter 3, but there's a contrast here between Smyrna and Laodicea. Smyrna is poor economically, but they are very rich spiritually. You come to the Shiliadosia, they are rich economically, but they were very poor spiritually. I think that speaks volumes in how we should look at our lives today. So we need to ask ourselves some questions. And I would, I would encourage you to think through these questions prayerfully. 
Be honest and cry out to God. Ask yourself, how do I measure wealth? How do I measure wealth, real wealth? Ask yourself, is the treasure of knowing Jesus Christ of sufficient value that I regard myself as incomparably rich, even though I own very little? Pray and ask God to make this reality in your heart. If I was to lose everything, would I still consider myself blessed because I know Jesus Christ? See, it's easy here to say yes, but I encourage you to pray and ask God to open up your heart to be real and true to yourself. Because if it is not true, or if you struggle with these, this is where you need to spend some time and pray, Oh God, make me this way. That if I was to lose everything, I would still be content with what I have in you. Think about Jesus Christ, who's our prime example. What did he own as a man? Not as God. We know what he owns as God, as a man. I don't even have a place to lay my head. But I know of no one who is more content and more full of joy. He's our example. So I'd encourage you, prayerfully consider these questions and pray to God to help you live that way, especially in the way this world is going. I pray, I pray for it constantly because I do fear. I fear that when that time comes, I don't want to cave in. I want to stand strong to the point of death. And I know in and of myself I can't do it. He must do it. So I highly encourage you to pray and think about it. So he knew their poverty. He also knew about their persecution, <clears throat> their tribulation, that pressure that they were under. It was not only uh, because of the poverty, but there was malicious slander and lies to destroy their character. We talked about that. Those who are claiming to be real Jews, those who are of God themselves, were casting slanderous accusations of these Christians who remain faithful to Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus doesn't specify the nature of the slander, and literally the word there is blasphemy, but it probably included attacks on their character because of their beliefs. The Jews hated the Christians because they hated Jesus Christ. They do not believe Jesus is the Messiah. They hated him. And for those Christians to follow and support Jesus Christ was blasphemy to them. And they hated it. And so the Jewish community, not having the right to condemn these people and punish these Christians, they would go to the Roman authorities and they would slander. They would lie. They would say whatever they had to say to make sure that these Christians were condemned. In fact, we saw, I mentioned this last week in Acts chapter 17, when Paul planted the church in Thessalonica, the Jews stirred up a mob and they said to the authorities, they came to the authorities about Paul, and this is what they said, these men have upset the world. No, they didn't. But that's the lie. And act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Now that's true, there is another king, the true ultimate king, but notice how they use it, slander and lying to go after Paul, because they hated him. And so they were persecuted by these Jews. And it's interesting, because these Jews would boast about their lineage. We're of Abraham. You know, we're Jews because we're of Abraham. And they believed that they were favored in God's eyes because of that. But what does Jesus say? They're not real Jews. Right? He makes it very clear. These people were Jews outwardly by birth, but inwardly where it counts before God, they were not Jews. <clears throat> and Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. 
He says, he is not a real Jew who is one outwardly. And that's what they were. They were Jews outwardly. In fact, Jesus identifies them as belonging to the synagogue of Satan. Talk about a condemnation. They are of the synagogue of Satan because they were doing the work of Satan. And Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 8. Remember, he says, you are of your father, the devil. Right? You are of your father, the devil. And they got furious with Jesus. Right? So it's not unusual for Christians to experience slander in the first century. A cursory reading of Acts bears this out very clearly. Uh, you could see it, and even through church history. In fact, Robert Thomas uh, made a statement. He said, during the first century, six types of slander were leveled against Christians. This is amazing. This is what the Jews would slander the Christians about. Cannibalism, lust and immorality, breaking up of homes, atheism, political disloyalty, and incendiarism, or arsonists as, as well as being inflammatory. And no doubt the one that they capitalized on the most was uh, political disloyalty. But that's what was going on in that first century from Jews against the Christians. Cannibalism. I mean, they were desperate. They would say anything they had to. And that's what they were experiencing. And Jews would have viewed Christians as a religion destroying the Jewish law, and they were offering a perversely easy way of salvation. And they also considered the Christian worship of a crucified criminal because they considered Jesus a criminal. That's why he was crucified. And so you're worshiping a crucified criminal, and they considered that blasphemy. And so as a result, the Christians did not enjoy the protection of the Roman government. But they were uh, slandered, they were uh, persecuted, and many of them at times were killed. And it's interesting here that the choice of the word Satan is deliberate. As the term is a Hebrew uh, uh, loan word, it means adversary, which depicts him as being actually very hostile, filled with hatred and slander. And the Greek term that is used actually means slander or false accuser. That's why they are the synagogue of Satan, because they're doing exactly what Satan stood for, and they could not see it. Right? And so these Jewish people, in their opposition and slander of God's people, have become one with Satan. Think about that. They become one with Satan. And by the way, all this slander and lie, it, it hasn't stopped. It's gone throughout history, and it's gone beyond even the Jews. Many times Christians are lied about. I know I have faced much of it in past years. And like I said before, they took active part in the martyrdom of Polycarp, um, a, a circular letter from the church at Smyrna to other churches in the Christian world, relates how the Jews joined the heathen to burn them at the stake. And as I said, they led the way in collecting the firewood, even on the Sabbath, something that no Jew would ever do. But in this case, they did it because their hatred was so profound and so deep. And so in heaven's eyes, these people were not true Jews, but they were missionaries. These Jews were missionaries for the prime adversary of God, the devil himself. That's what it means that they were at the synagogue of Satan. And so they became agents of Satan in opposing the Christian church. Interesting. Simon Kistemacher says, he makes this statement I thought was quite interesting. He says, in the province of Asia, Jesus portrayed Smyrna and Philadelphia as places where Satan instigated blasphemy 
and lying in the local synagogue. Also, in those two cities were churches that Jesus praised without uttering a word of reproof or correction. Then he made this significant statement. He said, truly, in the darkest places, the light shines the brightest. And I thought, that is so true. The darker it is, the brighter the light is going to shine. The question is, is will we let the light shine? But I'm hearing the terms from a lot of Christians. Boy, it's getting darker out there. It's getting dark out there. It's getting miserable. It's getting hard. It's getting darker. It's getting darker. So my question is this. If it is getting darker, what does the world need then? Light. Are we going to be the light that shines brightly in a very dark, dark world? So I agree with Kistemacher. You look at these two churches, suffered tremendously in dark times, and they shone the brightest. So rather than look at all the darkness that's going on and worrying, we should be looking at ourselves or looking at God and saying, what a grand opportunity. Do you realize the opportunity we now have that we can now shine brightly for the cause of Jesus Christ? That's why Jesus commended these at Smyrna, these Christians at Smyrna, because that's exactly what they did. They, remain, they maintained their testimony, remained faithful, even to the point of death. And they were blessed for it. And so verse 10, Jesus continues, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. So he says, do not be afraid. He warns them of the suffering, and he identifies the author of this persecution as the devil. We're going to go through difficult times, he says. And this is going to come from the devil. So when you look at what's going on in this world, and all the wickedness and darkness that's going on, and it's going to get worse, just remember who the author is, right? And Jesus says that certain members of the Christian community will be seized and be thrown in prison. And the way the devil is throwing Christians in jail is by stirring up the slander against them through those who call themselves Jews, but they're the synagogue of Satan. And of course, as I mentioned, they were under his influence. So the result of these charges, the result of this persecution, was that some of these Christians were being put in prison with a death threat hanging over them. It's interesting, the Roman imprisonment back then in that day was used for one of three reasons. First, people would be arrested to compel and coerce obedience to the magistrate. They would put them in prison to try to get them to compromise and obey the Roman Empire rather than anything else. Second, it was to keep the accused confined pending the trial date. Something that happens even today. And then third, to detain the guilty until the time of execution. And when you look at Jesus' description here in verse 10, he says, until death. It points to the third reason for their imprisonment, that they're going to be imprisoned until the time of their death. They will be executed. And although some of them would die, and Jesus warns, uh, and Jesus warns them about it, notice, Jesus doesn't do anything to prevent it. Nowhere in this passage you see Jesus say, some of you will be arrested, put in prison, and you're going to die. But I'm going to help you and take you and prevent it from happening. He doesn't do that. I think it's important. He doesn't alleviate their poverty. 
He doesn't publicly vindicate his people in the face of those who hurled these accusations at them. And when Satan moves to incite their imprisonment and eventual execution, Jesus chooses not to intervene. That's hard for some people. Now, there are numerous instances throughout history where Jesus does intervene. We know that. But in this case, he didn't. And many times in our lives, Jesus does not promise that I will take you out. Many times he wants to go through that persecution. Now, most Christians today don't suffer persecution as these Christians did. But interestingly, what I find is when we do suffer persecution, what is our response? Yeah. Why me? Yeah. Why am I going through this? What's happening? Lord, didn't I go to church and give my check? Do I not get involved? So why me? Why am I going through this? We begin to question why we are going through all of this persecution. It's almost as if to say, we don't deserve this. I don't deserve to be persecuted. I do not deserve to suffer. However, based on the reality from Scripture, what we should be asking far more is, Lord, why are we not persecuted more? That's the real question. Because when we look at Scripture, when we look at the, 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 the evidence in Scripture, He even tells us, in this world, you will suffer persecution. You will suffer John Stott makes a statement. He says, The ugly truth is that we tend to avoid suffering by compromise. Our moral standards are often not noticeably higher than the standards of the world. Our lives do not challenge and rebuke unbelievers by their, by their integrity or purity or love. The world sees in us nothing to hate. I find that quite interesting. It's true. When we compromise and live the way the world does, why persecute? Why hate us? They're just like we are. And how many of you have heard... Oh, I don't trust Christians. They're hypocrites. Right? It happens. What we need to remember is the statement that David made in Psalm 16, 2. David said, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So I ask you again, in your heart of hearts, do you genuinely agree and hold to the statement that David makes? Maybe we should make this a priority in our prayer. Lord, help me to live this way that you are my Lord, and apart from you I have no good. So I ask again, if you were to lack things or lose what you do have, would Jesus Christ alone be good enough? Would we still be content and joyful with him or we would still complain and say it's not enough? I think it's hard for us now because of, we've had, because of what we've had in this country. We've been protected. We've had so much. There's so much affluence. And regardless of what you have, compare yourself to other people in this world. We have much. And because of it, we tend to be more entitled. And that's dangerous. Because if we lose it, will we still be happy that we have Christ and Christ alone? Because here's the beauty of it. When we have that contentment in Christ alone that he is all we need, then it doesn't matter what the world says, and it doesn't matter what they take, it doesn't matter what you lose, because they cannot take away Christ from our hearts. They cannot separate us from him.
And that's what these Christians in Smyrna had. The way our country is going with all of this darkness, it's only a matter of time before we face this kind of persecution. And so I ask people and ask myself constantly and I pray about it. Are you ready? Are you ready? Because it will happen. And you don't just wake up one day and say, I'm ready. It's going to take prayer. And I would make this an object, of, uh, a, a topic of prayer constantly. I think we're going to end there just because of the time. But are there any questions or comments? I know I did most of the talking. <clears throat> I was trying to get through all of verse 10, but there's no way. Any questions or thoughts that may have come to mind? Yes, sir. Well, I know personally it bothers me that as Americans, we are blessed beyond measure. And yet I think we're the biggest complainers on the planet. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I went to, I remember, it reminds me of a time many years ago, I, was, I did a, made a mission trip to train some pastors in India. And the very last day we were there, <clears throat> I finished, I gave them the opportunity to give testimony. And it's absolutely stunning, some of the things they said. I looked at the guy that was with me, and I had tears in my eyes. I said, this is incredible. These people literally, when I say have nothing, the average pay at that time, we were in the poorest part of India when we went. In that day, 25 cents a day was the average pay. 25 cents a day. But if you were to look at these people when they worshipped, they put us to shame. And they didn't have a worship team. They had this one little guy about this big, three bongos, and he's going to town on these bongos. And they're singing and rejoicing, having a great time. And I'm just saying, dear God, have mercy on us for what has happened in our hearts. I'll never forget that. I could still picture it today, and even though it was many years ago. It's true. We have so much, and if we lose it, we complain. But in reality, we should say, I have Christ, and no one can take that from me. Any other thoughts? Okay. There we go. There we go. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this lesson, this this church, and what uh, what we can learn from this this church. It's so overwhelming at times. You've been so good to us. And the fact that you gave us your son, Jesus Christ. What amazing glory. What amazing riches that are ours in him. God, have mercy on our hearts for the times we are consumed with, uh, with what this world tells us that we should have. Make us a people. Transform us and make us a people that sets our mind on things above and not on the things here. Keep us faithful to you at all costs, regardless what this world may say, regardless of the darkness that is out there, regardless of what Satan does. Make us a people who emulate Jesus Christ and live for your glory and your honor in every, every way. Our fathers, we go to this next service. We pray again. Open our eyes that we may see great things from your word. Excite us. God, overwhelm us with your presence. May we not just be lackadaisical about this. But Lord, help us to see the immeasurable riches we have just in our relationship with you. To you, O oh God, to you be all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.